Hello Passport People listeners, Finn here, and I just wanted to take a moment to tell you that Island Life Productions is now on Patreon. Patreon is an online subscription service that allows you to support our work for as little as £2 per month in exchange for different bits of bonus content. So far, we have been uploading special Passport People travel vlogs, Tales of Andalusia, and The Highland Fling, taking you on personalised video adventures to some of the most beautiful parts of the world. We've also been uploading special behind-the-scenes content from our recent fiction podcast, Welcome to the Quids Inn, with special videos showcasing how we made the series, and a bonus bloopers podcast with all the funny bits from the recordings that weren't in our initial script. To join the island and begin supporting our work for less than the price of a coffee per month, go to patreon.com slash islandlifeproductions today. And now, on with the show. It's really funny because the first episode we ever recorded was you and me at our dining room table. And now 49 episodes later, here we are doing exactly (laughs) the same blooming thing. Except this time... You're the one answering the questions. Oh, God. Hello, and welcome to Passport People the podcast where we talk to people about the places that matter to them. I'm your host, Melanie, for this episode only. (laughs) And tonight, we're joined by Finn Russ Russell. Uh, I'm not used to being this side of the microphone. It's weird. It's very, very weird. (laughs) So, Finn, for all the listeners that might be joining us for the first time now, tell us a bit about yourself. Oh god, this is going to be a really bad first episode for anybody where this is the first time they're listening to it. But hi, I'm normally doing what Melanie does on Passport People. Um, I live in Edinburgh. I run a small company called Iron Life Productions who produce this podcast alongside a whole load of other bits and pieces from uh, online networking events to uh, online competitions for uh, non-professional artists um to we have a board so managing them filling out loads of funding applications and when i'm not doing that i'm facilitating and directing and producing and doing all kinds of fun things for various companies around scotland so yeah that's me and where are you from finn see the thing is i propose having this question in every episode of passport people because i hate answering this question So, I have a British passport. That's what I travel the world on. My mum is, has two Sri Lankan parents but grew up in Canada. And my dad's side of the family are full British. And then in the midst of all of that, because my parents decided to be hippies, we grew up all over the place. So, I don't really know where I'm from. I kind of say British Sri Lankan. That's the kind of easy way of putting it. But... I mean, really, it's so complicated. And, yeah, I I find it very difficult when people ask me that question because I I feel like I'm almost trying to fit myself into a box. And that's before we mention you're a little Frenchy at heart. Oui, oui. (laughs) (laughs) Bah, si je peux parler en français, pourquoi pas? (laughs) Given all the options you have, where are we talking about today? 
So we do have so many options. And I think if I could absolutely have talked about anywhere, like if I if I was a normal guest on Passport People, where I was coming in completely fresh, talking about exactly where I wanted, I'd want to talk about, I'd probably be talking about Paris tonight. But as several lovely other people have already come in and requested to have conversations on Paris and France, I thought it would be a good idea to cover what I'm absolutely surprised in 50 episodes of Passport People has never been covered. And that is the place where purely on time I've lived for the longest amount of time of uh, being alive. And that's the British capital of London. say a few words about the music people will be hearing during this podcast yes so um as people know episode nine of every season of passport people since season two tends to normally be having a musician on and i have gone through about <laughs> seven or eight different people to come on and be the inspiring musician uh all of whom uh fell through and didn't respond to emails and that sort of thing. So instead you get me, but I do have some music because over the summer I collaborated with Scott Bathgate, who was on the last uh, season of Passport People, season four, episode nine, talking about Edinburgh. And over last summer, so summer 2021, we wrote a musical together called Constitution Street. And uh, Strange Town owned the rights to it. Um, but very fortunately, I'm able to kind of share the music with you guys. And if you do like what you hear, please get in touch at finnadanlifeproductions.com and we can talk about ways to get it put on because it's a story of uh, Leith, a community in North Edinburgh, and young people and their response to the COVID-19 pandemic. So I think there's a lot there that people will like and people will be interested in. Shall we get to the questions? Sure. As you said, you've lived there several in different times of your life. How did you enjoy it? How did it change for the times you've been there? See, that's really interesting. I think London is one of those global cities where change is kind of an inevitable part of the nature of the city. I mean, for any Patreon members who've watched The Real London, they will know that London started out on the kind of south bank of the Thames about where the globe is. And from the globe, it's kind of expanded out and expanded out and expanded over the river and it's expanded further out. And every district of London is almost a kind of new layer in the same way that when a tree grows, it, it gains another kind of ring on the inside and it gets kind of thicker and thicker and thicker. London is very much like that. And you can see the way that, for example, uh, Oxford Street and Regent Street are built in this really kind of mm -hmm. modern style. You can see how with Stratford and Battersea nowadays, you have the kind of the new districts of London coming on. And you know with Crossrail coming that it's going to go even further and further out. And so to answer your question, 
so much has changed of London in the time that I've known it. I mean, the overground wasn't on the tube map, which, you know, is a silly little thing. <laughs> but I I love trains. For those of you uh, who don't know me, I I'm absolutely obsessed with them and specifically around kind of train maps and these systems and networks and how they all fit together. And when I was young, I had a map of the tube in my room and I used to look at it in the same way that, I don't know, some kids look at posters of superheroes and football players and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I guess that those systems really fascinated me because those systems were kind of a way of understanding this city that's otherwise so big and crazy and massive (laughs) and overwhelming that you don't really know where to start. And it's easy when it's the areas that you know, and it's even sort of easy when you know central London. But I remember from when I was a young boy, I was obsessed with this concept of going to the end of (laughs) the tube lines. Like, I would look at the Piccadilly line going out to Heathrow, and I'd look at the central line going out to West Ryslip. And these places would seem so fascinating and exotic and new and interesting. And of course, when you actually go to some of these places, there's not a heck of a lot there. And a lot of the time it is the suburbs. But I think understanding those systems is kind of your way into understanding London. Because Mm -hmm. otherwise London is so big that, as I always tell people, it's not really a city. It's technically a city, but with the cultural difference of being in the Docklands versus being on the South Bank versus being in Camden versus being in Hampstead, it's a completely different life. You can't really be a Londoner and feel like your experience of London is exactly Mm -hmm. the same because it's so, 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 so crazily different. And I think to go back to your original question, (laughs) what's changed over that time is that those areas of London have kind of they've gained more character more's been built into them in in some cases that means they've been gentrified in some cases that means that um the local shops and the kind of local vendors have been pushed out to make way for i don't know a jamie's italian or in the case of notting hill where my grandparents live you know what was a wh smith became a boots became what i think ironically was a jamie's italian <laughs> And then became what I think is now a Danish bakery. So, you know... Very good bakery, by the way. <laughs> so, you know, London London is constantly changing. That's kind of what makes it what it is. But it's also what makes it so difficult to, to grasp onto as a concept. Because the moment you think you know London, you come back two years later and everything feels so radically different. But isn't it part of its appeal? Um... I mean, it kind of depends on who you are as a person. I mean, if you're the kind of person that likes roller coasters, for example, and you like going really, really fast, and the thrill of it is kind of what you get high off of, then London is the perfect place for you. Because London never stands still. And I know that New York (laughs) is the kind of stereotypical, it's a city that never sleeps. But London is really like that in terms of, because of its profile, because of its history... Because of the cultural relevance it has, not just for Brits, but for people all over the world for various different reasons, 
it never it never stops it never rests it doesn't understand this concept of what it means to not be you know working really really hard whether that's because you've got a highly paid job in the city or because london's really expensive and you're trying to make ends meet or no matter what that is that's driving you london almost kind of forces that drive and it forces that drive because everybody in london is kind of you know in order to keep up with each other you mm-hmm. need to be able to kind of be at the same speed as everyone else. If you, for example, um, you know, are serving uh, people who work in the city, you are, you know, under pressure to meet the demands in, you know, all the different ways that demands can be defined of people who work in, in the city. And, you know, that's a lot. And it's especially <laughs> a lot when you consider that and again, this is a disgusting fact to anybody who doesn't know this. There are eels in the Thames <laughs> who are coats to the eyeballs. Because what happens is there's so much cocaine use in London that the cocaine gets flushed down toilets in all the various different ways that cocaine can get flushed down toilets, including having gone through people. And it goes into the River Thames and literally the the, the sea life in the Thames is as kind of buzzed and hyperspastic <laughs> as the people in the city it inhabits, which, you know, I mean, again, if you're the kind of person that likes that life and likes things to move really fast, it's perfect for you. I don't think I would say I'm one of those people, which didn't make me a very good Londoner, I'd have to say. And my heart will always be down by the fourth. And here I am in this perfect space and time. There is no proper reason Cause there is no proper rhyme But it's my home And everyone you meet Will smile and wave to greet you On Constitution Street You studied in London Yeah Don't you think that maybe that kind of life Was what you What younger people might need to get their experiences, to get opportunities that they might not get otherwise? It's interesting because while I was sort of in the process of figuring out what uni I'd end up in, I went to Glasgow and I went to the Royal Conservatoire and I I had a sort of audition interview for the course up there. And I spoke to people about Central because by that point I'd gotten into Central and I was very excited about potentially going to Central and this was to see like do I actually prefer this instead but in my heart I kind of knew to myself I want to go to Central but even while I was there and even while I was talking about it there were people who were in the audition interview with me who were like oh well, I'd never study in London because it's just too blooming expensive and I am very privileged in that I have family who live in London I knew London fairly well And I was never in a position where I was concerned, oh God, you know, am I not going to be able to afford rent whilst I am, you know, studying? And that's a very privileged position to be in and I kind of acknowledge that privilege. But it also acknowledges a kind of really sad and scary reality of the fact that, yes, being a university student in London is amazing. (laughs) Like, being able to have 
access to all of these cultural institutes and all these research places and particularly yeah. if you're a university of london student and you have access to things like uh senate house library mm-hmm. and you can go you can walk onto the ucl campus and see people who you're in the same halls as um you know that's a really beautiful wonderful great experience to have and i feel very very lucky that i was able to have it because i mean i mean for so many different reasons it's you know eventually what led me to you it's what led me to meeting my two best men so you know i'm always going to feel positive for that and it's a it's a great experience but it's not an experience that's accessible to everybody and i think i think that's a serious uh problem and a serious issue that the residents of london kind of have to look dead in the eye and consider moving forward Well, but don't you think that's not just a London problem? That's a big city problem. Any place that's in very high demand, prices rise and it's just not affordable anymore. Because if it was, maybe it wouldn't be as attractive. Maybe. I mean, and again, this is kind of why I mentioned, I gave the disclaimer <laughs> at the beginning that, you know, I kind of wanted to talk about Paris. is because Paris for me gets the absolute perfect blend of that as a city. That's because you never had to work for to look for a flat in Paris while I can have to prove how much you money how much money you're making. Well, like not as like a foreigner but as a person living in France. Well, yeah, but hear, hear me out on the point that I'm making. Paris is a really big city, like there are kind of spreads out, you know, into the banlieue and into the various suburbs around. Yeah, but I would say that's the thing. Anything beyond the the city when you have to go to there, like people are like, eh, why bother? Like you want to live within this. Well, but this is the point that I'm trying to make in terms of the area within the peripherique in Mm -hmm. Paris. It's actually so relatively small. I remember while I was on my placement there waking up one day and I was at Porte de Vincennes right on the eastern side and I literally walked <laughs> all the way to uh, Porte Maillot at the other side of the city and it was just a walk. It was just like, I just fancy going for a stroll mm. and I just happened to walk kind of dead across Paris. And so Paris has this really magical quality to it of technically being this big international global city and yes, being expensive, like never going to deny that for a second but it doesn't feel like a big city like actually a lot of the communities and a lot of the kind of identities and a lot of the kind of the accessibility it actually feels quite small and quite easy which in a way that london doesn't because of how spread out everything is well but don't you think that some of these community spirit and all the things that you like about Paris can be found more like in neighborhoods depending on where you live like people from Notting Hill might like feel like they're a community people like in the in the east might feel like a community like in Stratford you might not have a london community because it's so big but you might find like in small on a smaller scale Yes, and this is why I define London as a country rather than a city, is because, you know, Stratford is a city within the country, you know, the South Bank is a city, Camden, Hampstead, um, Ealing, Hounslow, like they're all, they're all cities within a wider country, and yes, those cities all have identities, 
And if we were talking in a way where each of those communities almost felt entirely self-contained, where you didn't need to leave, for example, I don't know, Ealing, to take to take that as an example, in order to do anything. But I mean, in, even in the case of when you were working, when you were studying in London, you were working in around like Finchley Road yeah. kind of area. So... You know, and again, like, well, technically it's like, well, but Finn, I was working at a bar and there are plenty of bars in Ealing. But the point is that the practicalities of, like, having everything kind of included in your small community just aren't there. You know, the reality is that everybody is playing the game and everybody is happy to hop on the tube and go across London in order to get where they feel like they need to get to. And so often that will put people in a position where they feel like they've got to kind of travel really far outside of their community in order to get to the opportunities. And yes, I mean, to go to Scotland, for example, I am working with an amazing group of young people in Perth at the moment. That's an example of me getting on the train for an hour and 20 minutes and heading up there. So like, I'm not saying that this concept of leaving your community to head somewhere else is like completely foreign. But I'm saying that if we were talking about, say, the Midlands or, say, that that sort of belt of the north that I was talking about in last week's episode with, um, you know, the area between sort of Liverpool and York. I think I said Doncaster on the last one, but I've since (laughs) looked on the map and said York. You know, those cities are so close to each other, but they're also very self-contained. You know, there mm-hmm. you will always have, you know, everything you need to exist within that community. It'll just be smaller. Whereas with London, that's not necessarily the case. I mean, I get what you're saying, but I'm not sure I agree because you could, uh, depending on where you work, because if you make the choice to live next to where you work, you don't really have to live, leave your like neighborhood. You could just actually spend most of your life here. And I, when you're look at it if when you're not working even you at some point you were working at spid you were living in notting hill and because of the things you did and what you had time to do your life kind of was in this like little neighborhood yeah but it wasn't i mean even in those days i was still going to Mm -hmm. central and central's in swiss cottage Mm -hmm. now okay that's a 30 minute bike ride away (laughs) so it's not you know ridiculously far but there's plenty of reasons i ended up leaving the area and so it's it's not quite the same and also while I was working at Speed, I was the only person working at Speed who actually lived in the area the people I was working with my superiors were coming from North London East London South London and so it's not like there was an attitude that said well we're a West London company and therefore we want to specifically look to be hiring people from West London. I mean, for example, I've not gotten jobs because the job's in Glasgow and I'm in Edinburgh and they decided that, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was more convenient to hire somebody from Glasgow. Now, I'm not knocking that as a decision-making because that makes total sense. But, you know, in a world like with London, that kind of attitude and that kind of idea just isn't there. Because why would it be? Because I'm describing London as a country right now, but (laughs) London is a city. And if you live in a different part of that city, why should that 
um, why should that prevent you from being able to go and work, you know, in another part of, of said city? You know, it's... And, and also, because it's such a big city and because, therefore, there are so many people living in it, it increases the choice that companies and businesses and organisations have. So you could keep your pool to West London, for example, but why the heck would you when you can get better people who are living in the North mm. and living in the East? So on paper, you're right. It should be fairly straightforward. It should be very much like you know, London's a country, the various districts in it are the little cities mm-hmm. and you can live your community life within it. But in practice, that's just not how it works. I'm just saying, I, I didn't say like, oh, that's how it should be. Just that if somebody really wanted, they probably could. But don't you think that to a certain extent, the fact that it's like a country, but still staying a city by how accessible it is on the tube means you also meet a lot more people, a lot more different people you might not have had the chance to meet otherwise. I mean, it kind of depends on what you mean by different people. I mean, you're right. You're going to meet people from all over the world living in London. You're going to meet people from an incredible array of Mm. uh, walks of life. Like, yes, all of those things are true. And as we've had conversations, you and I, in the past... It feels safer to be in London as somebody who is different because you don't really feel that different because of quite the crazy variety of people who are there. Like, people say London's a melting pot. They're absolutely right. It is absolutely a melting pot. But it's not a melting pot. It's a melting pot that knows it's a melting pot. And therefore... It's attractiveness and the fact that there is this diversity is part of what London sells itself on and is part of, you know, well, is part of the kind of the capitalism around London that's made being in London so difficult is that it means that London is a really, really expensive city to live in because of how many people want that life and want to pursue those opportunities. And, you know, that's not totally insane. New York, I'm sure, is exactly the same (laughs) Tokyo, I can imagine probably being the same. You know, if you live in a in a popular global city, well, yeah. of course it's going to be expensive. But I think the sad thing is that London is a city that was very much built on its communities, that was built on the the people in the East End that worked in the ironworks, that was built in that was built in the immigrant communities that went to North London and made their homes there. And those identities that those areas used to have, it's not that they don't exist anymore, but that it's that they've got a bit diluted. I mean, Tottenham Hotspur, a great example of this. I have been to football games where people who are very clearly not Jewish have chanted the Y word as a sort of a symbol of of pride, basically. And it's like, well, okay, on the face of this, you kind of understand it. Tottenham is a really Jewish part of London, and a lot of Jews came there, and there was a lot of uh, anti-Semitic abuse that was aimed at them. And this is what the fans of the club did as their sort of badge of honour, their their sort of pride. But the problem is, the people that live in that part of London are no longer mainly Jewish. The people Mm -hmm. that support that football club 
aren't mainly Jewish. And therefore, even though the heritage will always be linked to Judaism, there is this identity that has almost been sort of made corporate and turned mm-hmm. into something that, I mean, again, to somebody who supports a rival club, is quite unsavory to see. Because, for example, I'm a West Ham fan and we have a very, very proud um, Cockney heritage. But I would never claim that I'm a Cockney. And I would never (laughs) sing about being a Cockney because that's just absolutely ridiculous. But the nature of London kind of becoming what it is has meant that these ideas have almost become sold as part of the corporate identity and image of what London is. And that in turn means that some of these ideas that we have of London of areas, I mean, take the football out of it, areas like Soho, areas like the King's Road, areas like Notting Hill they've become a lot more diluted because the moment that you get anything in London that's actually, like, real and beautiful and special, the thought immediately becomes, right, well, how can we make money off this? And it didn't used to be that way, but that's what it is today. not to just accept my fate. Learning street smarts, learning trends, learning how to recognise a real friend, learning about how to bake and cook, learning the things they can't teach from books. Say it loud and proud and strong. Say it if you know you can't go wrong. We don't need no education, education. Need no education, education. Say it in the pubs and the streets. Say it with your hands and mouth and feet. We don't need no education, education. Need no education. Remember the first time you watched The Matrix? You've not seen it? Well, basically, this guy gets offered a blue pill and a red pill by an anonymous stranger. The blue pill allows the guy to wake up in his bed with ignorance being blissful while the red pill shows the guy what the truth looks like. Can you honestly say that you want the truth that would destroy your world as you know it? But what if we were never given a choice at all? What if one day the contents of the red pill was dispensed en masse into the water supply and everyone woke up one day only to be blinded by the sunlight blazing through every window on earth? Go to islandlifeproductions.bandcamp.com to begin experiencing The Blindfold, a choose-your-own-audio adventure by Island Life Productions. you like West Ham and East London so much? I like East London so much because that is as close as exists to what I define as the real London is. To a London that hasn't quite been taken over by that that corporate nature. And, And West Ham fans who listen to this will be throwing various items at the speakers <laughs> at this point because, you know, a lot of them will argue that we sold out when we moved to the Olympic Stadium. And they will argue that the very fact that we hosted the Olympics there at all and we put so many um, local communities there out of a home is in itself problematic. And that's a conversation that 
I don't know, maybe we'll end up having today, or maybe it's, you know, one for a future podcast that's specifically East London based. But I guess the point that I'm making is that you walk down, um, you walk down Shoreditch High Street, and I'm talking the Bethnal Green end mm-hmm. of Shoreditch High Street. And for example, when we were um, living at Phil's, when we were shooting yeah. The Real London, we were able to build a nice relationship uh, with the chippy. You know, there are still, even though like the Tesco's and the big brands have moved in, you know, there are still local small uh, greengrocers and off licenses. Um, right up until West Ham moved out of their stadium, like there were entire shops dedicated to selling mash pies and jelly deals, you know, that's, that's as London as it gets and is the sort of almost the final frontier of what London used to be that has now become so, so, um, lost and confused, which I think is very, very sad. But wouldn't you say it's a bit contradictory to want to like small community feel and vibe of knowing your chibi that you will get like in a smaller town or village and then having this huge city with that many people in? Like, are these two parts compatible? Yeah, but again, you're still talking about London as a city. And I think if you were talking about Manchester, you'd be right. That would be a little bit contradictory. But because London is so big, mm-hmm. you can't think about it of London as London. You have to think about it as Stratford as the community. You have to think of it as Bethnal Green as the community. Now, I haven't lived in either of those areas, so I can't say with any kind of certainty. But I know that of the small time we spent in Bethnal mm-hmm. Green, of what Phil tells us about living in Bethnal Green... It does have that community vibe mm. and it is a lot more connected and that identity of, you know, knowing the people who you interact with on the street and like building relationships with them that feel real, you know, that does have the ability to kind of coexist with other parts of London in a bigger city. It's just that the people there need to make that decision that that's something they value and then work towards making that happen. Do you think you can see London a lot in like TV series, in movies, in music videos, everywhere? How do you feel about the way it's represented? Do you feel like there is some truth or it is completely changed compared to the the experience of the actual city? I mean, London has had London's been in so many blooming movies. <laughs> You know, it, uh, it's very difficult to kind of go through all of them oh, yeah. and say true, false, true, false. Um, but I definitely think this general image of London that's put out, which is this place that is the kind of almost the center of the universe, I think is absolutely true. And again, like maybe I am just kind of biased from my own experiences, but I remember while I was living out in, in Indonesia, And we used to visit family mm. in London. I used to stand on the Millennium Bridge, right in the middle, looking out towards London Bridge and Tower Bridge, and then looking westwards and seeing the London Eye and seeing Blackfriars, and looking south and seeing the Tate, and looking north and seeing St. Paul's Cathedral. And there's something about standing right there in the middle of that bridge that makes you feel so connected to 
everything around you. I mean, and that's partially because, like, geographically, you are pretty much like at the centre. You are where London started being London. But it's also definitely true that it's a place where it's a place that has a distinct culture, that has a distinct identity, that has a distinct history, that marks it out from so many other parts of the world. And so, I mean, again, it's difficult to say, like, in terms of the exact representations of London, but in general, is London a romantic global city where amazing stuff happens? Absolutely. (laughs) Is that, you know, being taken advantage of by the people in power in London? Also true. But it's definitely there and it's definitely real if you look hard enough for it. When I, the first time I came to London as an adult, I remember being surprised that there was nothing you could really say, oh, that's London. Let's, that's not like England or anything. That's just London. Because in Paris, we have the Eiffel Tower and that's just the monument that defines the city. Well, we've got Big Ben, we've got the London Eye. And like, that's one thing I notice is that you have all these things around the city, but you don't have like this one thing that is like screaming, this is London and nothing else. Well, again, Big Ben, London Eye. Well, yeah. Are those not super london No, what I meant is in London, you have several monuments, several small, like, but nothing that is like, oh, this is the one and only thing. Like you can ask some people that say Buckingham Palace. Some other people might tell you, oh, Big Ben and or the London Eye. But maybe is it because it's so big? So you kind of have all these like little parts scattered around. I mean, again, I'm not sure if this is a London question or if this is a Paris question, because I mean, with Paris, you could make the same argument about the Arc de Triomphe and about Montmartre and about the Louvre. So again, like, I'm not sure exactly like if it's just that the Eiffel Tower is just so iconic because it's the Eiffel Tower. But there are a lot of iconic monuments and places in London that are, that do make up London. You know, there's Trafalgar Square, there's Buckingham Palace, as you say, there's Tower Bridge, you know. And I think, to be honest, that's more a testament to the rich history that London has. I mean, Tower Bridge was constructed during the Victorian era at the height of the British Empire. Um, Trafalgar Square was a monument constructed to the Duke of Trafalgar, who beat uh, Napoleon, I think. I think that was the Battle of Trafalgar. I don't remember. Don't look I, at me. Yeah. I <laughs> My British history there is, is, is letting me down a little bit. But um, yeah, it'll be, it'll be something like that. Um... Uh, Buckingham Palace is obviously Buckingham Palace, but that was constructed in in the Georgian era. So, you know, I mean, maybe this is a slightly bigger argument about the British Empire and the fact that when they had a lot of money and they had a lot of resources, Mm -hmm. they pumped it into these things that are kind of symbols of the city that we know today. But I also think it's a case of, you know, London is ever expanding. London is always changing. London is always growing. And what that means is that with every new generation, with every new decade, with every new century, there will be new things that start defining what London is. Mm -hmm. So I just said, 
the Big Ben and London Eye, I didn't mention the shard. I didn't <laughs> mention the gherkin. I didn't mention the cheese grater building thing. You know, there are all these places that are iconically London because these things keep getting built in London. I mean, the Olympic Park for me is always going to be a special place because mm-hmm. that's a reminder of when London hosted the 2012 Olympics, which to 15-year-old me was a really, really special memory and moment so you know i mean which comes first the chicken or the egg is it that amazing monuments get built and the city becomes great or is it that it's a great city and a great city deserves great new monuments being constructed there earlier you talked about crossrail Mm -hmm. and it should it should have opened like a few years back and now it should open very soon should have opened while you were still (laughs) sailing i know (laughs) We should have taken that train. Um, But what do you think it's going to change for the city? I don't think it's going to change much in terms of the landscape of what London is. Um, So for Crossrail, we should just emphasize to people who don't know, Crossrail is a railway that's been under construction for a long, long time that is sort of a tube line, but is slightly more like the RR that I just mentioned. It's a sort of suburban train that will run from Reading and Heathrow Airport in the west all the way through central London. So that kind of area that the central line kind of occupies, but starting first at Paddington, heading Bond Street, Tottenham Court Road, sort of eastwards, out towards Liverpool Street, and then east on what is currently the line towards... Well, I think there's one branch that heads towards that heads towards Abbey Wood and another that heads towards Shenfield, from memory. Um, and what it's going to change is really just the, the landscape of, you know, London as an ever-changing mm-hmm. city. You know, those communities that are on Crossrail are now going to get a lot of infrastructure and the property prices are going to hike up because suddenly Londoners are going to realise, well, I can be in, I mean, take Shenfield which is an absolute middle of nowhere part of Essex, that all of a sudden is 30 minutes to an hour from Bond Street. I mean, yeah, some of these parts are not even in London. <laughs> well, I mean, take Reading. I mean, I've been out to Reading because I've, I've gone to see football there. And, like, Reading is an absolutely beautiful, sweet little town. But Reading is in Berkshire. Reading is a completely, like, separate place. Reading is on is on the Great Western Railway mainline. And yet now, because it's on TfL, it's effectively part of London. I mean, even West Ealing, where, where we were living and where you especially were living during your Met days, the prices of property around West Ealing are going to absolutely spike once Crossrail opens because suddenly it's mm-hmm. like you are 20 minutes away from central, central London. And, you know, why wouldn't people want to be part of that? And that in turn will mean that more people will live there, the property price will go off, the area will become more gentrified, more businesses will go and move there. You know, everybody is going to be kind of rushing to take advantage of being able to make more money. Um, and and so the pattern goes. <laughs> well, you might end up with an ever-expanding city than, like... Exactly. I mean, that swallows like Birmingham at some point. Well, exactly. I mean, you joke, but what um, HS2 is seeking to do at the moment Mm. is bring Birmingham to, I think, within an hour 
of London, possibly a little bit more than an hour. And that's a classic example of once the distance between Euston and Birmingham is the same as the distance between Euston and Hounslow. <laughs> well, what the heck is the difference between living in Birmingham versus we living in Hounslow? We will not accept defeat because we represent the future. We'll never stand alone and this is the movement. Come on, join in the movement. You are never going to feel the same again. Kiss the past goodbye and then just take a step and another. Believe that you will go far and this is the movement. Come on, join in. So you told us a lot about London, but which is a very inspiring city. But tell us a bit more about you. Who, what inspires you? So this is a question again for listeners to other episodes of season five that's specifically based around this being the season of inspiration. And therefore, this is a question that I've asked all my guests to kind of gain a sense of like, what is it that drives you? Um, and this is a completely off piece from London, but the wonderful, wonderful person who inspires me, who was invited to come onto the podcast but couldn't make it because of her various commitments, is a woman named Rihanna Abrams who um, lived in Bali while I was out there as a kid mm -hmm. and who was director of an amazing production of A Midsummer Night's Dream that I was very lucky to be a part of. And, I mean, aside from all the, the kind of stuff about the way it was put together that was awesome, what was really amazing was that I, as a 13, 14-year-old kid, was being put into the same show as professional proper acts and performers and be given a decent role and being given trust and actually feeling like I was being taken seriously. And because she took me seriously at that age and because she took everyone in that production seriously, everybody felt special. And when everybody was finally able to perform on the night and make a big deal of it, it was a really, really exciting and wonderful and magical moment for everybody involved. And to this day, I talk to people who I was in that show with and they've mm -hmm. never forgotten it. And they've never forgotten her and they've never forgotten the community vibe and spirit that they were able to get from being part of that production. Mm -hmm. And I'm unashamed in saying she is the reason I do what I do today. And she is the reason that I spend so much time talking about why it's important that a high quality product and a high quality process go hand in hand. Because when you work with people, whether that's people at the beginning of their career mm -hmm. or whether that's specific community groups, but when you work with a group of people and you put something on that is amazing and they also feel amazing because they had a lot of fun doing it and they learned loads. I mean, that's how theatre in particular changes the world and makes a difference to to lives and that's why I do what I do <laughs> we touched a bit on this before but what does the future hold for London I when I was living in London and specifically before I left London me and my flatmate Phil we had a lot of conversations about kind of what's going to happen in London moving forward and at the time we were living in Uh, a flat underneath my grandparents in Notting Hill and I said you know we're going to remember this because by the time we're adults well I mean we were technically adults at the time but like older older adults in our lifetime zone one is going to become this place that 
you know, people our age, young people, just don't live in because they can't afford it. And to be fair, that kind of is the case now already. Yeah. But it's gradually seeping into zone two as well. Mm. And London is becoming a little bit Hunger Gamesy in that, you know, <laughs> there's the kind of the capital where all the kind of rich fancy people live. And in that case, that zones one and two, that's the city centre and the area just around the city centre. And everybody else is kind of pushed out to the suburbs and spends their life going down the district line in order to be able to get to the work so they can serve the the rich fancy people who live in zone one and zone two. And what's really sad about that is that completely defeats the purpose of what a city is. If you have chased away everybody who is economically inferior to you from your city, I mean, not only is that gentrification gone absolutely insane, but it also means that the people who have tried to make this a city that everyone can kind of coexist in have failed absolutely miserably and I would love to see a world in which I'm wrong I would love to see a world in which we turn around and actually wow it's like London is this Mm -hmm. place where all these people from all these different backgrounds live and maybe you know there is you know a set amount of of housing in those areas that's made specifically affordable so that you're diversifying the people that live in these specific communities even the ones that are central like the area around um regent's park and the area around uh the city of london and the area around victoria but the the capitalist bug (laughs) bit london a long long time ago and to be fair capitalism is kind of what's made London the city that it is. But it's also made it very, very difficult to feel excited about what's coming next. Because from everything that I've seen, the capitalism has taken more and more and more and more Mm -hmm. of a grip on London. And that means that now it stands communities like Ealing, like Tooting, like Whitechapel, like... um, Haringey to turn around and say well we can't do anything about London London but this is what we can do in Mm -hmm. our community to make a difference would you move back (laughs) I'm sitting right across from you so (laughs) this is trick question this is this is Putin and the Ukraine meeting with the generals it's like do you agree about should we invade Ukraine (laughs) yes or out the window um I think probably London has London is a funny, funny place because because it's so international. Life always finds a way of taking you back to London, particularly if you you already have roots there anyway. And so I like if I'm looking at the rest of my life and looking what will happen, (laughs) like I would I would be inclined to bet that I will end up living there again versus betting that I would not end up living there again. But I think at the point at which I move back, I move back, and again, this is we, not I, but for the purposes (laughs) of this podcast, I would move back in a situation where I felt financially stable enough to not have to worry about that capitalism completely taking over me because I have lived in London with no money. And I've lived in London living off being a delivery cyclist and pot noodles and it's just not fun it's just 
you know, it's just awful and it's stressful. And I mean, there's a reason that six years in London takes a year off your life expectancy because that stress and that rush and that, uh, it's just not for everybody. But also like all the opportunities are so concentrated in London that sometimes you don't really have a choice. If you want to evolve, you kind of sometimes have to move back there. And for you, proper Londoner who's lived so many years at so many different parts of your life there, what's the cool thing to do there? Well, I'm not exactly sure if it's if this is the cool thing to do in London, but I would I, I would refer back to my previous statement. Go to the Millennium Bridge. Maybe maybe to be honest, mm-hmm. I mean again if we're giving the full experience here, get off the Tubert Embankment. Walk over the bridge, start walking on the South Bank, which most people who know London will know is quite a well-known walk. And then get to the Millennium Bridge, which you'll know because it's right across from the Tate Modern. And go up onto it, and it'll look like it's a bridge that doesn't work properly, but it absolutely does, I promise. And go right into the middle of it, and do exactly what I did. Stand in the middle, take in a full 360 degrees of the city and then once you've done that soak in the city that you're in and soak in the fact that you are at this global center where all this history and all this culture and all these stories are are just there right at the heart and and feel lucky that for a moment you get to be part of that so Finn I feel like we're Getting to the point of goodbyes, what do we usually do there? Okay, is it time for me to hostile take over this podcast again? <laughs> I think so. So, yes, what's been going on on Planet Island Life Productions? Well, I'm glad you asked, invisible audience member who I can't see right now. Um, we are very delighted to announce that we now know when the next archipelago is going to be. That will be on Monday, March 14th. So if you are listening to this episode of Passport People before then, and you would like to come along to that, make sure to email finn at islandlifeproductions.com and you can come along and be a part of it. And it'd be loads of fun and we'd love to see you there. Similarly, as mentioned at the end of the last episode, we are already beginning our preparations for season six. Season six is going to be the season of the kindness of strangers. So if you are somebody who has not met me, um but who would like to come on to the podcast because they're a listener or curious or they think they have something to say about a place, again, finnadanlifeproductions.com and we can slot you into this season of 10 people who I've never met before coming onto the podcast, which is going to be super, super exciting. If you enjoy the work we do, make sure to follow us on all of the usual social media platforms, our Facebook, our Instagram, all that sort of thing. And if you want to support the work we do for as little as £2 a month, consider heading to patreon.com slash ironlifeproductions. We will be back next week for the season finale of Passport People Season 5, where we talk to the last of our inspiring guests. But until then, from Melanie and I, goodbye. Goodbye. You've been listening to Passport People. The music was by Harry Bongo, and the cover art was by Maya Pires. Learn more about us by visiting our Island Life Productions Facebook page, visiting our Patreon at patreon.com slash islandlifeproductions, or by visiting our website at islandlifeproductions.com.